So we're continuing our study in the letter of First John, the first epistle of the Apostle John. And last week we studied about God's love for us and how that impacts our love for one another. And we're still continuing on that topic um, as, you know, the Apostle John has a, a unique way of writing things. When you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, you kind of see a progression. He's moving from A to B to C to D and then has a conclusion. With John, is like he talks about this and then he comes back to it again. He comes back to it again. So it's circular on his uh, way of reasoning. Now, every time he repeats it, he adds something new and he you know, uh, strengthened the point. So that's the impression that you have when you're reading First John. I think he already said this, but he's saying it again, but he's saying it in a different way. He's adding more stuff here. So that should encourage you, and it doesn't necessarily make it easy for us preaching here because it's, it's hard to come up with an outline and all of that, but uh, we just hope to be faithful to what the scripture says, all right? And um, I titled the sermon today is The Believer in the Trinitarian Love. The Believer in the Trinitarian Love. For all the fans of uh, C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia out there, at my introduction, we'll talk about it. You'll probably remember an evil trio, not a good trio, in the last book of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, which tells the story of the last war of Narnia when King Tyrion and his loyal followers fight the Calormene um, invaders and their allies. This conflict leads to the end of the world of Narnia and the beginning of a new adventure in Aslan's real country. Narnia has been at peace for generations, but evil emerges near the western wild region. So here's the trio. A clever ape named Shift manipulates a sweet but naive donkey named Puzzle to wear a lion skin and to impersonate the great lion Aslan. Shift uses this deception to increase his power and riches. Through the carefully controlled appearances of this false Aslan, Shift deceives more and more Narnians into believing that Aslan had returned. As the Narnians obey Shift's harsh orders, they allow their enemies, the Carlormines, to enslave them. And under, this is the third one of the, the trio, under the command of Rishta, that takes over Narnia, believing that Aslan has commanded that invasion. You see, that evil trio who brought Narnia under oppression was composed of three very self-centered characters. They were only concerned with their own interests. They oppressed the people because all of they wanted to do was to take, to take, and take. Today, I would like to draw your attention to a different kind of trio, a trio that is not divided in their intentions, whose intentions are not selfish, but intention to give, to give, and to give a trinity of love. And why I believe is starting our text today with our reflection in a loving trinity? Because the trinity has implications not only for what we believe, what we think about God, but also for how they relate to him and to one another. 
After all, it is the truth of the Trinity that explains the God as a relational being. From eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed the fullness of interpersonal relationships. They have always gloried in the infinite closeness that they share with each other. In other words, God has never been lonely, but has always been satisfied in the perfect fellowship of this inter-Trinitarian happiness that they enjoy. As, as John Piper explains this, it's from all eternity before creation, the one reality that has always existed is God. This is a great mystery because it is so hard for us to think of God having absolutely no beginning or just being there forever and ever and ever without anything or anyone making him to be there. Just absolute reality that every one of us has to reckon with whether we like it or not. But this ever-living God has not been alone. He has not been a solitary center of consciousness. There has always been another who has been one with God in essence and glory and yet distinct in personhood so that they had a personal relationship for all eternity. End of quote. Based on that perfect, perfect relational model and his perfect desire and purpose to have fellowship with his creatures, the triune God designed man as a relational being. I think that is a key here that the Trinity points us not just to the person of God, but it points us to what he expects of us. He created us in his image. As John MacArthur puts it, he says, man's creation in the image of God gave him self-awareness and the ability to think rationally, appreciate beauty, acquire wisdom, feel emotion, and understand morality. But the most significant aspect of the image of God is seen in man's capacity to love others. As demonstrated through his relational fellowship with God and with other human beings. Though only a shadow, human love, both for God and for others, is a reflection of our perfect inter-Trinitarian love that has characterized God from before time began. End of quote. This love that we have for God and for others is a mirror of the love that God has within himself, within the Trinity. The Trinitarian origin of perfect love brings the apostles' theme in 1 John chapter 4. So we're going to, we covered verse 7 through 12, so we're going to come back a little bit to it. And then four times in this passage, once in verse 12, he talks about love. Then verse 17, he talks about love, and twice in verse 18. John refers to the perfect or a perfected love. The New Testament mentioned many kinds of loves, but the supreme love is the perfected and completed love that comes from God at salvation. Romans 5.5, Paul wrote, Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us, who was given to us. It was love that does not derive from a mystical experience or attached to emotional sentimentality, but that originates in salvation and it demonstrates itself in good works of sanctification. 
probably remember from Ephesians 2.10, right? Good works that God prepared for us beforehand. The fullest expression of it occurs when believers obey the Lord. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected, according to chapter 2, verse 5. All right, without no more delay, let's get to our text, um, 1 John chapter 4, and we will start in verse 7, and we'll make our way to verse 16. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and him in us because has, he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we come before you in the name of all the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who has perfect love to learn from that love. Father, I pray that you would keep our mind from distractions as we think about these things. May we be challenged to love as you love, and may we be encouraged by how much you have loved us. May we find confidence and comfort and assurance that our lives are in your hands. Pray, Father, that you would bring clarity as we walk through this passage And may your name be exalted in Jesus' name, amen. So these verses are Trinitarian to the core. He's mentioned, really, it's it's impossible for someone that denies the Trinity to read through 1 John and not come up with with this challenge. There are three, yet there's one, and they are in the same accord, they're in the same opinion, they're in the same page. When we experience the power of divine love, we experience the work and enjoy the fellowship of a triune God. John Piper says, I think we will love each other and those outside with a distinct and a supernatural love when we taste the fellowship of the Trinity. The Spirit is on display here on verse 13. It says that he has given us this Spirit and the Son 
takes the center stage from verses 14 to 15, and the Father is also highlighted from 14 to 16. God sent his Son to die for us. The Son sent his Spirit to live in us. Both are gifts of his grace. Both are evidences of his amazing love for us. And the love that we now have for God and his children is a revelation of the Spirit of God who is within us through our fellowship, our relationship with Jesus. Love is certified proof that God now resides in us and not in a pantheistic sense, but through his personal presence. It's not that we become gods that when we love, but that he is present in us, is an evidence of his presence in us. So John wants his readers to know and to be assured of many things. Here he wants them to know that they abide in God and God abides in them through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. Now how do they know that this mutual abiding is real? Verses 12 provides part of the answer because we love one another and his love is perfected in us. The more four description is given in verse 15 to 16 that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and him God. And we have come to know and believe the love of God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. So putting all of this together, we know that we abide in God and God abides in us because one, he gave us his spirit as a grace gift at conversion. We received it the moment that we were saved. Two, we confess Jesus is the Son of God, Savior of the world. And then three, we abide in God's love, and his love abides in us. God gave us his spirit and will never take him from us. He's ours now and forever. For all eternity, there will be this mutual indwelling between us and the Holy Spirit. What a blessing. What a gift. All right. So to make it easier, I divided our text here in three main points. And it's really regarding this relationship between the believer and the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit and the Son. The first point is the Father manifests himself through love in the believer. The Father manifests himself through love in the believer. And the first point, the first point is the Father's love is made visible in the believer based on verse 12. What does it say there? No one has seen God at any time. If you love one another, God abides in us or remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. First, we see that this love is perfected. From, from the Greek, this really is meaning is, bring, is brought to completion has been brought to an intensified goal to its fullest form when we love others. Not that God's love is incomplete, but when it is manifested in us, it is fully seen, it's fulfilled in its form. It is through human beings that God's love finds its full fulfillment on earth. If we note the same verb um, is used in 2, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 5, with a very similar expression here. What does it say? It says that whoever keeps his word, 
in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. It's kind of very similar. So these verses are mutually inter- interpretative. They say, how is this that the believer, this love come to fruition in a believer? Through obedience and love of others. Therefore, John is saying that God's love for us reaches its full intended completion or goal when we, in turn, express this love for others, completing the reciprocity between God and his people that we see in verse 13. In this way, we know that in him we live and he lives in us because he has given to us his spirit. John introduces the role of the Holy Spirit as an evidence of God's presence in the life of the believer. How do we know the Spirit dwells in us? Because of the love we have for one another. The invocation of the Spirit here is the basis on which a Christian knows that he or she is right with God and shows that Christian love is motivated by the Spirit, not a sentimental human emotion. The next verse concerns with the Christian testimony that God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And that flows directly from John 17. How about we go to the gospel of John chapter 17. So you see, John, the apostle John, was one of the closest disciples to Jesus. And so he captured a lot of his speeches and he had it memorized. And one of the most beautiful um, episodes of Jesus' life is his last day here on earth when he was about to be taken up to the cross. You remember that all the disciples were gathered together at the upper room? And I, I remember this. It was, it was really etched in my mind when uh, we tried to reproduce when I was in Jerusalem that last day of Jesus' life. So we walk through the city, kind of trying to follow up his steps there. And at this moment here, you know, they, they were in the upper room. They had the meal together. Judas already had left them to betray Jesus. And then as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus starts praying for them. So we have the Temple Mount. It's kind of a high altitude. And then to get to Gethsemane is a little bit another kind of hilly area where you go to the Mount of Olives, kind of close to the Mount of Olives, and they have this deep, you know, um, valley between them. It's called the Kindrum Valley. And as Jesus is, is going down the Kindrum Valley, um, John gives this evidence that he starts praying for them. You know, just imagine, in the middle of the night, he is looking at the temple, you know, the temple that belongs to the Lord, to God the Father, and they have rejected him. And Jesus is trying to encourage them. I'm going to give you the spirit, but here, um, let me pray for you. Let me encourage you. So a lot of the words that John is saying in his epistle here is from that prayer. Uh, we, we closed our eyes at that point when we were doing that walk, and we had our professor to read that prayer, and we're just trying to imagine Jesus praying for us. All oh, that was just so amazing to, to, to have that picture because he wasn't just praying for the disciples. He was praying for us that would still come to believe. So here's the prayer. John chapter 17, verse 13. 
It says, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, but now I come to you, talking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they don't, they are not from the world, even I am not from the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even, I, even, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What we just read on a few, few weeks ago was that test the spirits, right? The spirit of truth. It says, as, I, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I want you to start seeing a pattern here. Jesus' conversation with the Father, and he is manifesting, this is my relationship with God the Father. Now, I want this relationship to be a model to the believers. That relationship that I have with the Father, I want them to have with me, and I want them to have with one another. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be also sanctified in truth. I do not, do not ask on behalf of these alone, but those who also believe in me through their word. Who is he talking about here? Is it you and I? It is us. We weren't there in Jerusalem that night, but he was praying for us. And here's what he prayed. That they may all, that they, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. How does the world believe that God the Father sent the Son? When they look at who? Us. Because they see the love that God has for us and they see the love that we have for one another. It's just an answered prayer. And what John is teaching here is exactly trying to remind them of God's word. The glory of which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Unity, not dissensions, not fighting, not quarreling. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected. That's the word there, in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as I, you have loved me. So the world will know that God has sent Jesus into the world when he sees that love that we have for one another that really is coming from him. Then skip into verse 26, it says, and I have made your name known to them and it will make it known so that the love of which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I think this is huge. I cannot even grasp the love that the Father has for the Son 
is the same love that he has given us. That's just mind-blowing. For all eternity, they have loved each other, and he wants the same love to dwell in us and to be expressed in us. Christian love is the expression of us being in God with love and him in us. That unity also has an evangelistic and revelatory purpose so that the world might see the presence of God's love in Christ. You know, the, one of the worst ways that we can portray to the, to the world that God is in us is through disunity because that does not point us to our triune God, that he's united. The Spirit then gives assurance of God's presence in us, in us, in him. Because in our natural flesh, this is who we are. We're rebels. We're fighters. We are arguers. But in Christ, we can have that unity that he prayed for us. All right, returning to our text here. I say that the, the spirit-empowered love in the believer gives assurance. So not only the spirit um, the Father's love is made visible in us, but it also gives us assurance in verse 13. Verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. God's indwelling, his living within the believer is mentioned three times in this paragraph. Verse 12 says that God lives in us, and every time he talks about it, it is reciprocal. What is that reciprocal? Is that in the same way that we're in him, he is in us? So he keeps repeating that. Verse 13, we live in him and he in us. Verse 15 says what? God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16, again, the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Moreover, each time this reciprocal indwelling is described, evidence of it is supplied as follows, because he has given us of his spirit. What is the evidence? He has given us the spirit. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, verse 16, whoever lives in love, of these three tests of the indwelling of God, the last two are developments of the first one. It is by the spirit that we come to acknowledge the incarnation of the Son of God. We couldn't do that on our own, even to acknowledge Christ as Savior. And by the same Spirit, we are enabled to love one another. In our fallen and under and redeemed state, we're both blind, we're unable to believe, and selfish, unable to love. It is only by the grace of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, and whose first fruit is love, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is, what is the first thing? Love. That we ever come to believe in Christ and to love others. Emphasis on the Holy Spirit is in fact a predominant idea of this section. This then is the sequence of thought. We know that we live in God and God live in us because he has given us of his Spirit then we know he has given of his spirit because we have come to acknowledge Jesus as the son of God and to live in love, in verse 16. 
some commentators make a mistake of seeing this paragraph as conditions. You know, if you're not loving, then you, um, this, is, this is the condition. If you don't love, you're going to lose your salvation. This is not, you're, you're not a believer. You're not living in them. So belief and love are not conditions of this dwelling. The Holy Spirit is not going to get away from you because you're not loving. However, this test and evidences it. The love that you have for another points that he is in you. And he spoke previously. If you don't have love for believers, you should question, am I in Christ? John writes, not by this we live in him, but by this we know that we live in him. So it's not a... a, and, a a challenge, uh, not a questioning of his, of his presence, but an affirmation of his presence. The theme of this section is the whole letter is really the grounds for assurance. That's why he keeps saying, this we know, this we know. We can be sure that God has saved us. Therefore, John assures his believer, believing readers that they can know that they abide in God or they remain in God, because he has given them of his spirit. Having already focused on the Father and the Son within his discussion on perfect love, now John emphasizes the role of the Spirit. By noting the work of each member of the Trinity, the Apostle underscores the Trinitarian origin of perfect love. Such love, which is accomplished through the work of each member of the Trinity, and manifested in the lives of the believers, find its source in the triune God from whom, from eternity past, enjoyed perfect fellowship as the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And those who remain in God, who stay with God, believers will reflect his love because God abides in them and his Spirit is at work in their hearts. It's sad people can see only the Spirit's effects, Right? Jesus compared the spirit as with the wind. Can you see the wind? No, you can't. But you can feel it. You can see the, the, the actions that it causes in the same way as the spirit. We can't see God. Nobody has seen God. God is a spirit. God the Father is a spirit. God the Holy Spirit, too. We can't see him. But it's sad when people can see the Spirit's effects on the believer's lives. There are no visible physical signs that guarantee that someone is filled with the Spirit, right? I mean, we, we hear in the Pentecostal movement, people having those breakdowns and jumping up and down. Oh, they're being dominated by the Spirit. That's nothing to do with that. You want to see the Holy Spirit working? See the love in the life of believers. That's how you know. The reality of their faith enables believers to know that they have the indwelling spirit, as John reminds his reader in the next section. I remember um, growing up, I had friends, you know, from different um, organizations and different churches, and they kept challenging, oh, but your church is so, so passive. It's just, I can't see the Holy Spirit is in there. How do you know the Spirit is in there? And I kept scratching my head. I was like, do you guys speak in tongues? Do you guys have... These healings, do you guys have this and you guys have that? I'm like, no, we don't. I'm scratching my head. I'm like, where, how we? And I just observed their lives and their testimony. It was just 
always fighting and competing to be who was more important. I mean, let me tell you, later on I came to understand and study scriptures more in depth, and I realized, like, you know, let me show you. In my church, this is how the Holy Spirit is seen. is the love that they have for one another. See how they care for each other, for each other's needs, how they encourage one another. I, you know, that can't come from man. We're selfish. That is a sign of the Spirit. All right, moving on here. Now, our next section is the Holy Spirit manifests himself through faith in the believer. We saw that the Holy Spirit was manifesting himself through um, the Father manifests himself through love in the believer. Now we're seeing the Holy Spirit manifest himself through faith in the believer. And that's in verses 14 and 15. Letter E there. The believer's faith is rooted in the witness of the gospel. It is rooted in the witness of the gospel. Now, this word gospel have become really trivialized. You know, it, it, people use it, you know, gospel action, gospel worship. And, and, and I, I really ask the question, do they understand what they mean by gospel? The gospel is the good news, the evangelion, that the, the Greeks called it, is the good news of Jesus Christ coming to die for us. That's the gospel. It, it, it's not a movement. <laughs> It is truth, the truth that God came to save sinners. So the experience of God's indwelling is based upon historical facts of the gospel. You know, the people there in Ephesus, so John is writing to the church in Ephesus where he was one of the leaders at some point here, way after the letter was written to, to the Ephesians with Paul, by Paul. We had a group of the Gnostics, right? We already had that threat that they, they claimed to have a superior knowledge of God. So they were speaking about knowing God. And they said, you know, they would say things like this. Yes, John, we know about this indwelling in God. God speaks to us and gives us this elitist knowledge. We have this superior knowledge that nobody has. And above the common herd of humanity. We don't actually believe that Christ ever became in the flesh. We you know, don't believe that because the, the flesh is evil. The spirit is good. Why would the Messiah come in the flesh? We deny that. But we come to know the supernatural knowledge that give us freedom from the material stuff that is the world is made of. We don't sin and so and so and so. That's what the Gnostics thought. But John will have nothing to do of any supposed knowledge of God that bypassed the Son of God coming in the flesh. That's why in verse 14 he says, And we have seen and we bear witness that the Father has, son, has sent the Son as a Savior of the world. So the believer's faith is rooted, it's rooted in the witness of the gospel. That the point of verse 14 does not appear until he reached verse 15 and 16 because he is going to expand on that. Who is we here that he's talking about? We have seen and testify. We go back again to chapter 1, verse 1 and 3. Who is we here that he's talking about? Chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. What was from the beginning, what we heard, what we have seen with our eyes, 
what we have looked and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who is this word of life? Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So we here simply means the apostles. They walked with him, they ate with him, they touched him even after his death. Remember Thomas, the doubting Thomas? I won't believe until I touch him. Well, he touched him. That's what John is saying here. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. So, this we refers initially to the apostles, then by faith and by the Spirit, it refers to all believers. Those who have experienced God are those who hold to the witnesses, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. The apostles had fellowship with Jesus as those who have lived in literal physical contact with him. To deny that he came in the flesh was a complete denial of the apostolic teaching because they were in his physical presence. After his ascension, they experienced Jesus by the Spirit. By they, but they know that Jesus who gave them the Spirit was the Jesus whom they had known on planet, planet Earth. Subsequent generations must accept the eyewitnesses' testimony of the apostles before they will know the spiritual experience of dwelling in God and having God to dwell in them. John says, it is we, we apostles and those who believe in our testimony who have experienced of God. No one knows the experience of God who does not accept this apostolic message that Jesus came in the flesh. John summarized this message. The Father and the Son were there before the time when Jesus came into the world. The Father sent the Son. Jesus was the incarnation of the divine Son, and we have seen that the Father sent the Son. His mission in this world originated from God, and his work was a work of salvation because he came as Savior. His work is available for all, not only for this Gnostic elite, right? They thought, oh, only the ones that have this superior knowledge can have a relationship with God. No, for everyone who believes. I want to clarify this with, uh, really, what, what is the apostolic teaching? What is the center of the gospel? Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. I remember studying this passage in Greek, and um, I was like, oh, this is so trivial. Like, everybody knows this. I got frustrated when my professor gave me this text. I wanted something more difficult. And I was like, but no. As I started studying, like, this is the essence of the message that we believe. What does it say in um, chapter 15, verses, we'll keep reading all the way to verse 8. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the word there, which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul here like John is saying, you know, this faith that you have that saved you is based on truth. Plain, simple truth. What truth is that? What I delivered to you as a first importance, which I also received that Christ, there's a gospel. Christ died for our sins according to his scriptures. Just as God said he would come and die for us, he did. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to his scriptures. 
and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared for more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared to me also. Even Paul had a, a, a physical presence of Jesus with them. So this is the essence of the gospel, is the eyewitness testimony of the disciples. Can you imagine, even for the, you know, those 500 people, they, they lived through the whole thing. So they preached with much boldness. And they're saying, we now, that we didn't live through that, we believe that witness. That is overwhelming. It's not one or two or three people that saw him, not just the apostles. It was a great number of people that saw that. That's the message that we preach. The experience of God's indwelling is based upon bold and openly confessed faith in the incarnate Son of God. We have seen John's point about the apostles, but what about the believers who come at a later stage? What about us? Later believers accept the apostolic testimony. We accept what they said, what they saw, what they touched, and we confess with the same faith. Because John expands here. He says, we have seen in testify of the Father, the Son, and the Son to be the Savior of the world. And then 15, it includes us. That's our next point. The Spirit-empowered faith in the believer gives assurance. So even though we didn't see these events, it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, who abides in him and he in God. So we have the same relationship that the apostles had with Christ and with the Spirit because we have come to believe and to confess Jesus, to confess this gospel that was preached to us. Anyone, really, or whoever, is the second-generation Christian after the apostles who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and God remains in him, and he remains in God. The later generation of Christians believe in the apostolic testimony. They confess, that is, they publicly let everyone know that they have come to faith. Sooner or later, gradually or suddenly, they enter into the same experience of knowing God as the apostles had. The apostles had fellowship with the Father and with the Son first. Then we have it in and through the apostolic testimony. Only on this basis is the mutual, mutual indwelling of God and the believer experienced. Someone can't claim to know God. Oh, you hear that a lot. Well, Jesus and I are tight. We're just tight, right? And it was like, well, what is your relationship with Jesus? Who Jesus is that? Well, if it's just like the man upstairs, he's, you know, he just loves me no matter what. He accepts me as the way I am. And like, well, yeah, he accepts where you are, but he saves you from the way you are. He saves us from a life of sin and, de and, and, and death. There is a close relationship between doctrine and belief and a relationship with God. You can't have a relationship with God without sound understanding of who he is and what he has done. That's just not possible. And then lastly, this brings to our last point here. The believer manifests his relationship with God through love. The believer manifests his relationship with God through love. This is verse 16. What does it say? We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. 
the belief God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So that's why his relationship with God is seen through love. For the second time in the chapter 4, John declares God is love. And what a loving God he is. How do we know that? We know through the gift of the Spirit, as in verse 13. I mean, previously we just saw that God's love is manifesting the fact that he sent his son to die for us. I mean, he gave his only son to die for us. Now he's saying that he sent the Spirit to be with us. That's also his love being manifested. And we know because of the gift of the Son, verses 14 to 15. So we know and believe as a settled reality in our souls that God who is love and indeed loves us. As we abide in the love of God, the love of God abides in us. Thus we see faith and love and knowledge working together to assure our hearts that God, this God of love, is our God and Father. Uh, Warren Wisby says, the more we love God, the more we understand the love of God. And the more we understand his love, the easier it is to trust him. Remaining is a condition that he already has given us. But how do we experience that? The more we know the love of God, the more we enjoy it, the more we trust him. After all, when you know someone intimately, you love them sincerely, you have no problem putting your confidence in him. End of quote. I mean, that's kind of what we talked a little bit this morning, right, about sexual intimacy. You will love that person, you will trust them. This is indeed the Father God we know we can trust the experience of God's indwelling brings great peace. We have known and have relied on the love which God has among us. God is love and he abides in love, abides in God and, he, and God abides in him. This is one of great heights of the Christian life to know God and to trust him. Knowing and to trusting in God's love involves authority. We know it. Like Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, we're able to say we have had access to him in such a way that we cannot be deceived. We can't be deceived on this. We can't be confused. It is clear he has given us, and we can know for certainty that we belong to him. It is sharp clarity. It is illuminating light. It involves relying or confiding on God's love. It is a confidence in God's protection. It is a confidence in God's provision. It is a confidence in God's guidance and rescuings. It brings us peace. It brings us joy. It brings a sense of direction. We are not alone. I really appreciated our song that we were singing earlier. He knows my name. He knows every thought that I have, and he still loves me. How can he? He knows that I'm frail. He knows that I sin, that I mess up, and yet he knows me. It's just a confidence, a comfort for us. So involve is a continuing love toward others. It is a realization that salvation is a kingdom of love. When you abide in God's love, it is not only, it only brings you confidence and calmness and peace. It 
has overflowed to others also. It doesn't stay with you. If it does not overflow to others, it will be lost yourself. Because the fruit of the Spirit is, lo- is love, joy, peace, in that order. The outflowing of love to others bring influence of joy and peace to ourselves. It requires confining the love of God to be able to love others. It's very easy to talk and write about love, but every Christian knows what it's like when everything is against them. It's just, it's just hard. There are times when everything conspires to chatter our faith, but it's also true that every Christian experiences times when everything conspires to shatter his love. How can we remain in this? How can we go on with this love? How can we abide in this love? By continuing faith in the apostolic testimony. By the regular day-by-day practice of Christian love, we shall continue in God's love. If we love one another, God remains in us. In practice, this involves insisting on faith and insisting on love no matter what is happening to us. In trials, we believe we shall we show love. In delays, we believe and we show love to others. We walk in the spirit, we resist legalism and harshness and needless severity. We admit what is happening to us. Yes, this is hard, but God loves me. And I have the church, I have the people of God that loves and cares for me. And when I see my brothers and sisters are struggling, what do I do? I do the same. Hebrews chapter 10, 23 to 25. I think it is a good reminder for us. It's a practical outworking of this manifestation of love through the Spirit. In the confession that we have in the gospel, that we have believed the gospel. Chapter 10. How can we love others if we're not part of God's fellowship? How can I, I, I care for someone's needs if they are not here? How can I have my needs cared for if I'm not here? Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, brings his exhortation. Let us hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, coming together as a church, as it is a habit of somebody, encouraging one another, and all the more you see the days drawing near. You know, life is not getting any easier. It's going to get harder until Christ comes. And we need one another to stimulate each other to love and good works, to do what is right, to remind us how we're walking with God. Out of the confession that we have and our hope in the Lord Jesus, this love that we manifest to each other. I want to close here with a little story from um, a, a pastor from the 18th century, well, the 19th century, really, uh, Robert Clever uh, Chapman. He was a pastor in a Barnstable, um, England, and um, really for a very long time, he was a single um, pastor there, and you know, if probably saw this book called Agape Love, it's like his biography. And oh, you just read his story, and it's just so encouraging to, to see how that man was an example of love. So, here are a few of his 
uh, interesting quotes. Actually, he had a, uh, his best friend was William Hague. Um, they had a bond in the Lord. They were faithful friends. And here's what, how he describes his friendship, this fellowship that he had with his friend William Hake, his co-pastor. He said, our hearts were presently knit together in the fellowship of the Spirit. Each other, each found the other a lover of the Scriptures and bent upon obedience to the Lord without reserve. I mean, I look at some of you and I see these friendships of stirring up with each other with Scripture. It's a beautiful thing. True friends that are not just bond by, you know, taste of sports or hunting or other things, but truly with the love that you have for God and for his spirit. It's much like what William Hake had with Chapman. Even Chapman's closest friends not spared his, he was very witty. Um, so this other preacher, John Knox, known for his pioneering evangelistic work in Nova Scotia, once visited Chapman and William Hake at Chapman's home. And on the first day of his visit, McQueen, you know, this visitor was talking to Chapman while Hake was absent, so his friend was not there. And during the conversation, Chapman said, Mr. Hake is a very provoking brother. He's been provoking me all morning. And you're thinking, oh boy, this is not, I, I didn't come here to hear people complaining about each other. McQueen was startled to hear such a remark from a man whose kindness was well known. But to his surprise, that didn't last very long. Chapman continued, Mr. Hake has been provoking me all morning unto love and to good deeds. He was quoting Hebrews 10.24. Really, that verb there in, um, in Hebrews is, is stirring the pot. You know, it's pushing. It's to stimulate, to provoke. Not to do bad things, but to do good things for the Lord. And his um, missionary friend once said of Chapman, my business is to love others and not to seek that others shall love me. Truly, that, that is the essence of Christian love. It's not about ourselves. And he says, um, when talking about caring for others, that it's better to, lo- to lose your purse than to lose your temper. Sometimes we're so selfish, we're so self-focused, we're not even looking to the needs of our brothers and sisters. And so that's what I wanted to leave with you. Make it your business to love others and not to seek others to love you. Let's pray. God, we are humbled by the great truths of the gospel, that you would have sent your only son to die for us. Not only that, that you would send your spirit, or that you pray for us, even before you were even born. You were praying that we were united in love, the same love that you have given us, that we would have this love for one another. And that would be an an assurance for us, a certainty for us that you are in us and we are in you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would stir up the hearts of my brothers and sisters to make love their major pursuit, to stir, to provoke one another to love and good works. May you challenge us to think in that way for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.